Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long for another installment of the David Roots Book Club as they discuss the autobiography of Etta James. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Brooks Long to continue our adventures in the David Ritz Book Club. Today, we're going to be talking about his uh, co-written autobiography of Etta James, Rage to Survive. Welcome, Brooks. Hey, glad to be back. Yeah, and so we've talked about Marvin, we've talked about Aretha, we've talked about Ray Charles, and now we're on to Etta James. And I would say she's not as big a mess as Marvin Gaye, but she's up there. She's pretty well up there. And it's, it's uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense that they knew each other. I don't think uh, they were hanging around each other much at the height of their, their issues, but uh, it makes sense that they were in the same circles. <laughs> it yeah. does. It does indeed. And she knew everybody because she started young <laughs> and she and she carried on performing. She pulled herself out of all her various troubles. Yeah. And from, you know, and was functioning and working, you know, her last two, three decades, maybe four decades. She was high functioning, working out there, you know, uh, singing and and rocking. So do, we don't have to worry about the sad burnout of of Marvin Gaye but uh she's definitely got her own set of ups and downs and I guess we'll just start with with the childhood background she's born James Etta Hawkins uh she's born in Los Angeles in the 40s um she quote had two mothers two childhoods two different lives in two different cities so she's got a birth mother Dorothy who has her very young with an unknown father and Etta James thinks it's Minnesota Fats. And there's a picture of her with Minnesota Fats, the legendary pool player in the book. And she introduced herself. And it's never really proven one way or the other. I guess you'd have to do DNA. What's your take on the whole Minnesota Fats at a James fatherhood legend? I mean, uh, that's, I, it, you know, that's gotta be him. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it can, you know, you could go on more and, and it turns out it's, it's, it's not, it's maybe, maybe it's Kansas city fats, but, <laughs> but I mean, they, they look incredibly similar for two people, uh, you know, for, um, for her mother being a black woman. Um, yeah. Yeah. Etta, Etta was very light skinned and her face looks exactly like Minnesota fats. I mean, um, or very, very close. So yeah, it's, it's, um, really fascinating. And, and back to the Marvin Gaye thing, there was a lot of that with Marvin Gaye's second wife, 
where uh, her father was Slim Gaillard and, and, right. you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So these connections, and, and I love that Minnesota Fats, you know, that she, the people that she knew around Central Avenue of Los Angeles would hold that man in awe, you know, the baddest white man that ever walked in two legs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, you know, she of course drank that down and there were other people that were, that were rumored to be her father as well. But Minnesota Fats was the one that she settled on, but she's also raised um, by a woman she called mama. Her mother was very young, passed her off to her sister, aunt cozy, who was not the guardianship type. And so, she passed little Etta or little James Etta on to Lulu and Jesse Rogers. And, and Etta called Lulu Rogers Mama Lou, and she called James Rogers Daddy. And Mama Lou died when she was fairly young, but she was her mother figure, essentially. And and it's interesting. It's kind of like Ray Charles in that, that there, there's two mother figures. Right, and, that is true. And, and very different. And then Jesse Rogers, she called Daddy, and he... Uh, lives longer and is a supportive structure in her life for throughout. He's he's a guy that one of these people that they say had the first dollar he ever got his hands on and became kind of a, a real estate, not a magnate, but he had some properties and had a lot more stability than Dorothy or Aunt Cozy, who are characters of the underworld, I guess is what you could say. Aunt Cozy's basically yeah. a prostitute and uh or a courtesan or whatever you want to call it uh enjoyed welcoming the sailors uh to shore while her faithful husband uncle james stayed at home and, and dorothy isn't a prostitute but she's almost shadier it never it never seems like edda knew exactly what dorothy's angle was but she was running with some pretty bad characters and then later on when edda's a star and Dorothy goes on tour with her. Dorothy is an agent of chaos at best. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think it says a lot that Minnesota Fats is probably Etta's father. Uh, and and it really from from the very beginning you can you can see that this kid was just dropped into this uh, L.A. underground world. She she was in the church world as well but but um you know minnesota fats we should say was known as you know the the most legendary pool hustler that there ever was yeah um, of the 20th century i think it's fair to say he was the greatest pool hustler of the 20th century yeah yeah and to the extent that there was a movie based on somewhat uh based on him or or the, uh the movie the hustler uh has a character played by jackie gleason that's basically based on him yeah i think um, he's even named minnesota fats or something else fats but some it's something very based on Minnesota, yeah, yeah, but but uh, there there are just so many angles to you know this the L.A. underworld, and Etta really seems to have you know some connections through her through her uh, her mom and and her aunt and, and uncle to uh, to so much of it. A lot of this book is kind of like reading a, a Walter Mosley book. You're learning a lot about the LA underground here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I hadn't thought about Mosley, but this that is absolutely it. But from the very beginning, there's this musical connection too, because yeah. from the time she's five years old, she is 
charging up to the front of the church and singing along with the choir. And this isn't just, you know, any church in the middle of nowhere. We got people like Rosetta Tharp, Sally Martin, Joe Adams. The big time gospel stars are coming through her church and she's singing with them from a very young age. So she's marked out very early as a talent, as a singer. And it, I don't know if you've ever read Art Pepper's autobiography, Straight Time, but it's one of these people who's so gifted, who doesn't, I don't know, that she doesn't have to think about it. You know, you don't hear her talk in this book. She doesn't talk about the craft of singing or she doesn't, she talks some about her backing musicians, but just kind of in the context of guys she hung out with, or if there was an anecdote about one of them, like one of them who ODs right in front of her that we'll get to later, she'll talk about it. But it doesn't seem like she really thought about her music a great deal. She just sort of embodied her music and expressed her music. It just was a gift that came to her more so than a craft that she studied and toiled at. Right from the get-go, though, it's not just church musicians that she's seeing. She's back and forth between L.A. and San Francisco with her various um, family units. And, and Mama Lou dies very young, and Etta is the caretaker for her. And uh, there's some really ugly stuff where Dorothy actually mocks Mama Lulu's death and the way Etta had to to take care of her in her final moments. And, and you know, it gives you a lot of sympathy for young Etta, who had um, a tough, tough upbringing. But let's go ahead and cue our first song. And this is a song that Etta wrote or co-wrote. Uh, she took the melody from Hank Ballard and his series of songs, uh, Work With Me, Annie, and she writes a song called Roll With Me, Henry, a.k.a. The Wallflower. And this is Etta James, age 15. What Roll With I Me, Henry. Have to do to make you love me too. Oh, I got to roll with me, Henry. All right, baby. Roll with me, Henry. Don't mean maybe. Roll with me, Henry. In the old time. Roll with me, Henry. Don't change my mind. Roll with me, Henry. All right. You better roll it while the rolling is on. Roll on, roll on, roll on. And that was young Etta James, who was renamed Etta James by the great band leader Johnny Otis when he discovered her and renamed her group The Peaches. So it's Etta James and The Peaches doing Roll With Me, Henry, a.k.a. The Wallflower, which um, this was a series of songs that Hank Ballard of the Midnighters had put out, or it's sort of an answer song to the songs that Hank Ballard had put out, which were considered very risque. These are the kinds of things that were actually sold under the counter at many record stores at the time, but they were big sellers. And Roll With Me, Henry actually made it into the top five of the R&B charts, I want to say, before Georgia Gibbs swoops in, renames it Dance With Me, Henry, and it becomes a massive, massive success in the white pop market. She goes on Ned Sullivan, et cetera, et cetera. And Georgia Gibbs, I don't want to demean the woman. I don't know anything about her, but she's kind of the Pat Boone, the female Pat Boone, and that when... Sure. Whenever, many times in the early 50s, when somebody like Ruth Brown or Laverne Baker would have a hit song on the R&B charts, Georgia Gibbs would swoop in there from Columbia and just Bigfoot it all over the place and also really suck the soul right out of the tune. 
Yeah, that was that was a marketing strategy. That that wasn't just something that uh, that happened. Uh, and and it, it to to be fair, <clears throat> um, there were you know there was lots of that from the very beginning of um, of uh, the recording industry and before. You, you just covered songs and you know you did them and one style for this audience and you did them another style for this audience, depending on what you thought that audience was, uh, was comfortable with. But at this point in time, uh, it was known and it was understood that there was this thing called rhythm and blues and it was incredibly popular. And, you know, if you, uh, smooth it out you can make it more acceptable to white teenagers that have a lot of disposable income at this time and you can make a lot of money and forget about um you know the the what the original recording artist the the original recording artist that you could make an incredibly strong argument that they're uh the the more towns and certainly the more purposeful um and passionate of you know the the performers yeah absolutely like you know pop music starts out sheet music based and the beginning of the recording era anytime you had a hit song you would have several maybe half a dozen people doing hit versions of that song but by this time in the early 50s it's more of a concerted strategy and the big companies know exactly what they're doing. And it's fine if you're getting the publishing, if you're the songwriter and you're getting the money, you know, Hank Williams made a lot of money off of Tony Bennett and others covering his songs. But young Etta was so young and naive that she's not getting the publishing. You know, Johnny Otis put his name in there. And let's talk a little bit about Johnny Otis. Johnny Otis is a really interesting figure in the R&B world at the time. He's probably best known for Willie and the Handjob, which was a hit he did in the later 50s. He also produced the original version of Hand Dog, Hound Dog, uh, the Libra and Stoller song by Big Mama Thornton. But he's a Greek-American, and he essentially passed as black or converted into into being black (laughs) he he lived among black people he played rhythm and blues he identified as a black man he married a black woman raised black children he wrote columns in the los angeles black paper he had radio shows he's very committed uh to being part of the african-american community i don't ever know that he said i'm black or tried to fake an identity but he lived it. He he was in the community. He's playing this music. And it's interesting because you and I actually, this is how we met. Right. Another yeah. guest, uh, Josh Allen Freeman. And he said almost the very same thing that Etta said, which was the, you know, Johnny Otis was blacker than 90% of the black people on <laughs> earth. And, and, you know, you wrote me and called me out. And that's not really true. You know, even the, and this is a, your words, but this is how I think of it. You know, even the most bougie, person you know of african-american descent who's absolutely not interested in black culture who's trying to be as white as possible if they've got the black skin they can't take it off whereas johnny otis could when he needed to say when he was touring the south of the group and if if you know some redneck was was getting dangerous which happens all the time and edda james has some multiple scary stories about yeah you know, gas station attendants pulling guns on him and dropping the N-bomb and 
you know, really ugly, terrifying stuff. And Johnny Otis could play the white privilege card when he needed to. So, yeah, I, you know, I, that has permeated my head that there's a difference between being hip. And I can see Johnny Otis being hipper than 90 percent of the people on Earth, 90 percent of the black people in America, because he was this top flight musician and member of the community. But he was not black. Anyway, he discovers. I also, go ahead. Yeah. I also think I think it's interesting. I've thought about this a lot more. I think it's very interesting, and I th think maybe it speaks to the dynamic of the time and maybe the times that perhaps we're still living in, where uh, if if uh, you're a a black person engaged in the white world, that that's not going to get you a whole lot of street cred. But if you're a white guy, at least in certain circles, um, that uh, that is engaged with uh, in the black culture, uh, that's a different thing. That's that's you know you have a certain air about you. Um, uh, there's a certain respectability, um, not just among blacks, but among whites or certain whites. Uh, about you there's it, it's uh, you become legendary just because you're engaged in the black community yeah um, so I, yeah. I, I think that's interesting i yeah but but johnny otis is incredibly important we probably you know even with his privilege we don't talk about him enough and his son Shuggy otis uh was a precursor to prince uh i i think he's he's incredibly important so is Shuggy. Yeah, yeah, Shuggy is really underrated. Did an album with Al Cooper when he was really young. And Johnny Otis has a pretty solid body of work. I'd, I'd compare him with somebody like Amos Milburn, uh, that kind of pre-rock and roll R&B artist. And Willie and the Handjob has become, you know, an undying classic. And anyway, he discovers young Etta, or one of the her fellow band members in The Peaches, which wasn't called The Peaches yet, went out and met Johnny Otis and told him we had a singing group. They they call Etta out of bed. She's 14 years old. They call her out of bed. She goes to this hotel room where all these musicians are. She doesn't want to sing. They finally get her to sing. She has to go in the bathroom to sing. Johnny Otis hears her and immediately wants to get her in the studio. He hears the song, uh, originally Work With Me, Henry, that it changed the role with me, Henry, and and changes the name of the Creolettes to the Peaches, change, changes James Etta's name, James Etta Hawkins becomes Etta James. And, you know, Johnny Otis, if anybody can said to have created Etta James, it's Johnny Otis. He named her. Uh, he packaged her. He put her out on the road. And, you know, it's one of these life stories that's just she goes from this, you know, I, I want to say waif. You know, she's she's really got after Mama Lou dies, she's got nobody really looking out for her. And suddenly she has a hit song and she's on the road touring with bands and, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history from there. And that's one thing about Etta James. And we'll talk about this later. Um, she's kind of got a reputation as this blues matriarch, mm -hmm. but really she's a rock and roller first and then a soul singer second. And she definitely did a lot of blues numbers and did them really well. But to me, that's way down on her resume. But let's hear one more song. Um, and this is At Last. This is from her Chess Records era. And this is one of the pop standards that Leonard Chess got her singing. And unlike so many other artists, Marvin Gaye and Aretha Franklin come to mind, who struggled when they tried to do pop standards, 
it really worked for Etta James and was part of the chess formula for getting her back on the charts. Uh, so this is Etta James doing At Last. Etta James doing the pop standard at last. And we kind of jumped ahead there to get her on chess because she starts out, she's on modern records, which is right. the Bahari Brothers label. And they have, she has two hits early on in the 50s. And that gets her on that circuit. And so much of this book is just full of great anecdotes about her singing and rocking with and partying with and working on the bus with just a ton of characters. If you're into this early R&B era, I mean, just everybody checks in. You got little Willie John, of course, being the bad influence on the yeah. bus. As he always Not is. the only one. <laughs> no, no, but he's always notable. But you got, you know, you got Sam Cooke in there. Um, you got Richard Berry, the author of Louie Louie, who is uh, kind of a producer a and r guy for modern records you got jesse belvin who's a really he wrote the he's best known probably for writing earth angel but um before his untimely passing in a car wreck was a real contender right up there with sam cook or um any of those you know uh, jackie wilson i'd say jesse belvin was a major major talent and she knew him well and he really comes alive in this book and and you know, she really mourned his sudden death. So what were some of your favorite anecdotes or some of the characters that, that she. (laughs) I'll tell you, um, this, uh, this book, I, I, I really love this book and I, I love all the, the anecdotes. It ain't for (laughs) the choir. (laughs) (laughs) No, not a lot of church. There's some, uh, I mean, there. Well, I mean, there is a, a lot of a lot of church in there, but I mean, you know, it, it's not for this for the saints. Uh, there's no. a lot of sinning going on. In, Absolutely, and in some the of the saints are the worst offenders. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's very true. Um, I, 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 you know, can't help but think about the uh, the. She's talking about being a chauffeur for the Shirelles. At this party that uh, little Richard and little Willie John and and all these people, or maybe Sugar Pie DeSanto, Bo it, Diddley with his movie it, camera, Bo, Bo Diddley with his movie camera, and uh, lots of lots of crazy things are happening that you wouldn't, uh, uh, you know, things that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know whose idea it was to have Edda James Chaperone. <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> yeah, yeah, little little if, Richards in there. Yeah, if Etta James says I'm going to be your chaperone, and the second thing she says is let's go to a party with little Richard <laughs> and all these other guys, boy, she's already she's her chaperone duties are kind of 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty pretty iffy at best. But she's got a ton of adventures. Uh, she shares a bill with Elvis, has a lot of good things to say about Elvis, um, and you know shares lots of bills with Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson ba- bails her out of some bad situations, and sure. at one point beats up. Um, uh, one of Etta's lovers, who she only refers to as the pimp, she won't even name this guy. She hates him so much, and he, you know, classic abusive relationship. Yeah, which and, re- yeah, yeah, which which reminds me of another story, a brief story she tells about meeting Billie Holiday, who um, was um, was Dorothy, her mother's favorite singer, um, and I, I guess she met Billie like within the year before Billy died. And, you know, it was a bit of foreshadowing. Um, Billy didn't look very good. And, you know, I think there, you know, were some obvious marks on her arm and things like that. And, and she just looked at Etta and said, you know, are you looking at the way I look? Just don't let this happen to you is what she said to Etta. So that was, I thought that was poignant. It it definitely was. And Etta didn't, Etta managed to pull up from the brink, but she pushed yeah. it really hard. And she has another classic encounter with Dinah Washington, who is kind of the queen oh. at this point. And she's so excited when she sees Dinah Washington come in the club that she starts singing one of Dinah's signature numbers. Big mistake. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Dinah practically drags her off the stage. Not quite that bad, but she makes a very public showing that you do not sing the queen's song when the queen is in the room, <laughs> little girl. <laughs> I tell you, there. If if you want a dynamic movie, I gotta see the Dino Washington movie if it's done right. That's yeah. that's the one I'd like to see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's Nadine Cahotis has a really good biography of of Dino Washington called The Queen that that um, I'd love to cover on the show sometime. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, just a great singer and really underrated and, and had a really another tragic life full of triumph and, and tragedy. But so Etta has this period on Modern and she works, like I mentioned, with Jesse Belvin and, and Richard Berry on a number of tracks. They also send her to, to New Orleans where she works mm-hmm. with, you know, the legendary band Dave Bartholomew, Earl Palmer, Palmer the great drummer, uh, does, does a ton of, of great tracks. There's some really good compilations that compile. You can get basically all the modern recordings there and and that's well worth a listen even though she only had a couple hits on modern she put together a pretty solid body of work that and it's pretty crazy there's numbers that sound where she's doing a little richard impression and and a number of others that are just really fun but she wants to get on chess she she meets up with leonard chess in chicago he buys her out of her modern contract for three thousand bucks she gets a five thousand dollar advance from chess has so many debts and and bad management and everything. She ends up with $500 when that's all said and done. And then she starts her relationship with Leonard Chess. And she's very upfront that this dude never paid royalties. But otherwise, uh, she got a pretty glowing regard for Leonard Chess. Like one of the last things he did in his life was make sure that the house that he had bought for her that the deed and everything got to her, that there was a secret envelope when he died and somebody came to her and delivered um, this envelope. So Etta, you know, ultimately gives Leonard Chess a pretty big thumbs up, I would say, although she doesn't pull any punches about he was tight with the royalties. But she ends up not just recording in her own name, but she did backup vocals on Chuck Berry's Back in the USA and Almost Grown. And uh, it's really 
I, I didn't know that. And it's really fun to me to imagine that room. I mean, my God, you got yeah. Chuck Berry, Willie Dixon. Uh, uh, I think Jimmy Marvin Gaye. is in there too. Yeah. Marvin Gaye is singing backup vocals on that one too. Harvey Fuqua of, of um, the great doo-wop guy who later becomes a Motown um, producer and who was Etta's lover for a while and, and kind of her first serious love, although he apparently never took her seriously. He kind of brought her to chess, but then he and Billy Davis um, had written some songs with the Gordys, Barry Gordy and his sister that Etta did, and they kind of trade. Harvey Fuqua goes to Motown, and Billy Davis comes to Chess and becomes the main a- A&R guy there uh, in the 60s in Chess, and that's when Etta really has her her golden age as, as a soul singer. But let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk more about Etta's Chess years. And so, yeah, Edda's had this, I wouldn't say apprenticeship, because she was very successful from the beginning. In fact, she's pretty analogous to Little Willie John in that they both start out way too young. They both have rock and roll hits and are on the circuit at a very young age and, and are on the road all through the 50s. But unlike Little Willie John, Edda has a second act and matures into a soul singer in the 60s. And so much of this is with Billy Davis. And there's kind of a two-pronged strategy that Chess has with her. First, she does these big um, soul tearjerkers uh, where repeatedly they have her watching somebody else get married, watching her lover marry somebody else. And and that's one path. Um, you know, if I can't have you, uh, and all I could do is cry is, the I think, the b- definitive one of that. That's one that was co-written by uh, Billy Davis with Barry Gordy and his sister Gwen Gordy. And you know these these soul weepers are one cha- one track that they put Etta on, and then the other one is this pop standard track, and and it works great for her. If you look at her singles charts, she's consistently in the R and B top ten for a good four five year period there from fifty nine to sixty three sixty four, but at the same time. Her personal life is an utter disaster through this entire period. She's flirting with heroin. She's involved with pimps. Uh, she's, you know, at one point she has two band members OD right in front of her. Butch Navarro, the bass player, uh, died right in front of her. Uh, I guess yeah. she had taken over the Midnighters from Hank Ballard. And and, um, and then she's got this manager, John Lewis. What was your take on John Lewis as a manager? And, and a Well, it, it seemed like uh, John Lewis... Uh, was just trying to keep the the ship steady, <laughs> as steady <laughs> as 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 he could get it. Uh, you know, there there's only so much controlling you're going to do over over Etta James. Um, you know, he even uh, I, I believe it was him that helped her get hooked in with um, the Nation of Islam. And you know that took for a little while, and then it didn't. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, he seems he seems to be uh, you know <laughs> not he's he's in the world um, for for certain, and to navigate that world, you got to have a little a little dirt on you. You have to you have to be a little uh, you know less than pure but uh but i it seems like he was doing uh good things good things for her um 
up until he gets hooked, and that's where the, yeah. the the one story where he where he just lost me was was Leonard Chess had paid for Etta to go to a convalescent home and to get cleaned up, and she she does a treatment, right. she gets clean up, and she goes to New York. John Lewis picks her up and immediately gets her high, and that just a massive party foul <laughs> right there, especially for a manager. Um, you know, so, and he ends up going to prison and, and, but she, she forgave him for that. And, uh, you know, and that's just that junky thing. I mean, it's such a contagion and I just count my blessings. I've never gotten involved in that particular drug um, because it certainly is a hard one to get off, but it's not just the heroin. I mean, that leads her into, Antics like passing bad checks to the point where she gets sent to Rikers, Rikers Island, which is still, you know, a nightmare today. She goes to the Cook County Jail at some point, um, just is having this nighttime underworld life while she's making some of her best records. It's it's I don't know. It just I, it's hard for me to listen to those records and know that she was a junkie in full bloom of her addiction and still able to put out like that. It's incredible. It, it really is. Um, and at the same time, I think um, there's, there's a certain something that she's bringing to standards like at last and Sunday kind of love, which I, I think it was Harvey Fuqua's idea to, to get all that going um, but it's it's the mixing of the 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 bitter with the sweet uh, that I think follows uh, Etta James, and I think people today, when we think of Etta James, I don't know, she, at, at her late part of her career, which we'll talk about, she's like this raw blues singer. But I think the really crucial thing about her is that she's always mixing sweetness in there uh, yeah that's that's like a crucial thing about her and she's you know got all these uh you know earth mother kind of songs that she didn't she kind of resented but you know her talent just really lends itself to that yeah absolutely and i i thought a fair bit and i went back and listened to some of aretha's attempts at doing kind of the standards and also Marvin Gaye's early stuff where he's trying to do the standards. And to me, it's like Etta's just raw flamethrower power. It's never corny when she does that stuff. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's a really dynamic blend and it's really living in her hands in a way that I think Marvin was a little bit more polished and more of a chameleon almost. And, you know, you end up with kind of like, yeah, just a not great Sinatra style singer, you know, when it, he needs to get into soul to really bring out the real Marvin. And same thing with Aretha. I think the further Aretha got from gospel, the more her power waned. I, I mean, she's still Aretha and it's still incredible, but it's I think if you listen to Etta James's versions of standards, it's easy to see why they were hits where Aretha oh, yeah. Franklin's were not. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's an interesting parallel because at the time that Etta was having those hits, Aretha was having next to no hits. Yeah. Um, I, th I think it's I think it's interesting that, you know, someone like Ray Charles um, had a, you know, 
a similar thing where, you know, he sings a standard and no, no matter how saccharine it is, there's going to be a rawness to it. And I think maybe that's their approach to life, but also their upbringing. When you think about uh, Marvin Gaye, you know, he had an, a family environment that uh, was, you know, was instable in was not, you know, everything very that unhealthy, you, yeah. very unhealthy, but uh, there was a certain amount of structure and stability um, and with Aretha Franklin, I mean, she just grew up as, you know, this princess, you know, princess of Detroit. But uh, but Etta didn't have any of that. Etta grew up in a Walter Mosley novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, you know, so the rawness is just going to be there no matter what she does. Yeah, absolutely. And let's hear another song. And this is one that Etta co-wrote. Something's Got a Hold on Me. This is from our classic Etta James Rocks the House album, 1963, live in Nashville with the great David T. Walker on guitar and leading the band. This is Etta James, Something's Got a Hold on Me. was Etta James doing her own composition, Something's Got a Hold on Me, from Etta James Rocks the House with uh, David T. Walker leading the band. And this is this period when after James Brown does Live at the Apollo, which he had to you know, basically pull Sid Nathan's teeth out with a pair of pliers to get that record, <laughs> had to pay for it himself to get that record out, suddenly every soul artist is doing live albums. I can Tina Turner must have done about seven, and Etta James Rocks the House is um, really a gem of that genre. And you know, I was really kind of disappointed that she didn't talk about David T. Walker because I'm a big fan of his. And, you know, he goes on to play with, does a ton of Motown sessions, plays with Marvin Gaye later on and has a number of solo albums. And as far as I know, this is the first major credit on his resume. And I would love to have heard about uh, David T. Walker leading that band and, and trying to corral Etta James, who at this point has been a star for almost a decade and is just a force of nature and is way out there in the lifestyle. So, um, yeah. you know, just, just a, a great record. And she writes a number of songs, you know, in this period, but she never really devoted herself to it. And if there's anything I would wish if she, you know, if we had an alternate universe that, that I would love to hear what Etta James could have done if she had really focused on her songwriting and her artistry um, as much as she focused on her lifestyle. But I'm just grateful to have what we have. Uh, For sure. Yeah. And, and and great stuff. And and she also got herself into trouble by assigning her writing credits to boyfriends. Billy Foster got a number of writing credits that Etta assigned him because she didn't want to pay taxes or had a tax issue. But, you know, it, it uh, comes back to haunt her and she's uh, very bitter about that whole thing. What's your take on this this era, the, the early 60s chess era with Etta? 
Well, the early 60s, uh, that's, I think that would be considered her like classic era. And yeah, that's, that's where a lot of the really iconic stuff uh, comes from. And, and that's, that stuff is, is great. And it is in the culture in a way that other things that she's up to, maybe minus, you know, you can leave your hat on or something like that, uh, aren't. Um, every I haven't heard a bad Etta album, and particularly her her all her live stuff. I I have a, a live album from you know the '80s that she's doing in a club that it doesn't sound like there's more than 200 people in there, and uh, and it's fantastic. <laughs> I don't think she really gave uh, bad performances at all, no matter. Uh, what the the songs were that she was singing, uh, no matter no matter the band, but uh, but that chess period of time, including when she goes to Muscle Shoals, um, yeah. that's really uh, the classic what we understand as the Etta James canon, I guess. Yeah, it's it's why she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and right everything else and it's interesting that the chess chess had a pretty good soul stable going and they had maurice white and and a couple other guys from earth future earth wind and fire members in the session band um really cooking but etta kind of falls off i mean she's spending time in rikers island for one thing and and has her various heroin habits and so in 67 when leonard sends her down to muscle shoals and this is you know, Aretha Franklin most famously went down to Muscle Shoals, but Wilson Pickett went down there too. There's, you know, and the great documentary Muscle Shoals about the guys at Fame Studios. Rick Hall originally put the band together, and the band we think of as the Swampers, as the Muscle Shoals guys, they were actually the second rhythm section in Muscle Shoals. The first sec- session, sec rhythm section out of Muscle Shoals got poached by Nashville, and Billy Sherrill took those guys up to Nashville. The second generation plays on the classic Wilson Pickett tracks, the classic Aretha Franklin tracks, and makes uh, the legendary Tell Mama album with Etta James. And it's interesting to me that these guys are perfecting soul. Like, we think of soul as kind of happening earlier and funk happening later, but soul is kind of perfected there in Memphis and Muscle Shoals right around 67, 68, the same exact time as James Brown and Sly Stone are formulating funk. And I don't know that that's yeah. where to go with that, but I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of always the way. I think you know, um, you could argue that Ellington was doing some of his most interesting stuff just as bebop was coming along. That's true. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, they, I, w- the sound that we understand as like almost stereotypical soul music with like blasting horns and the 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 you know big walking bass line almost like skipping uh strutting bass lines uh that's a very muscle shoals thing i think it's a more exaggerated version of the stack sound really um yeah. more yeah more into overdrive stacks no uh they could they could really rock but there's always this like sort of cool laid back 
funkiness to it where where the Muscle Shoals guys are kind of straight ahead. And uh, Tell Mama is as uh, prototypical, uh, archetypal as anything of that classic, almost stereotypical uh, soul sound. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go ahead and hear it. This is Etta James doing Tell Mama with the Swampers. that was Tell Mama from the Etta James album of the same title, cut in Muscle Shoals with Roger Hawkins and David Hood and Jimmy Johnson and Spooner Oldham and all those guys we now know as the Swampers. So a classic collision there. And that gives her a nice boost. But then she's like off to Alaska and spends some time in jail in Alaska. I mean, just cannot get out of her own way. You know, and, and it's not like one of these artists where they're having a creative run, then they get into drugs and there's a downfall. She was a really high functioning addict because she cuts so much of this stuff. Her whole peak period, she's messing with heroin through this entire period and a succession of bad of boyfriends ranging from bad to awful, really. And um, it's just amazing that she was able to power through that and apparently could show up to the studio stoned and deliver the goods. It's, you know, I don't know how, how she did it, but I think. Yeah, that, I don't know anybody who was able to sustain that for quite as long as she did. Yeah, I mean, just uh, a Keith Richards level constitution. But even Keith Richards has a fallow period when the heroin gets to him and he, and he you know, takes away his creativity uh etta didn't really have that but again like i said she didn't she also didn't really direct her career and after leonard chess dies of a heart attack um she never really has anybody mentoring her or guiding her in the same way marshall chess tries to step in and she makes some attempts to uh emulate sly stone and attempts to keep up with janice joplin and her comments on janice joplin were pretty interesting too because she had seen and noticed a young Janis Joplin watching her shows in Texas and Oklahoma early on and years later meets the Janis Joplin. And Janis Joplin has to introduce herself and explain, I was that kid. And I thought it was really touching uh, what Etta James had to say about Janis Joplin and, and how highly she regarded Janis Joplin and, and felt protective of Janice and wish she could have protected Janice from her demons because Janice could not hang with the kind of substance abuse that that Etta could and it you know killed her at a very young age no yeah I what think you, go ahead yeah I think um it you know I think we have this idea this sort of stock idea that there are these you know white artists that screw over black musicians and then there are the black musicians that are just endlessly upset about it and you know the the reality that all of that is there and deserves to be there and a lot of 
in almost all the cases, but it's it's more nuanced than that too. Um, Janice uh, would go out of her way to you know let people know who she was influenced by. I she said a lot about Etta James. I I think that uh, there's a lot of Esther Phillips in there too, uh, but um, but Etta's you know she admitted that she was initially very put off and you know maybe should be you know here's here's another georgia gibbs um but came around to to see and appreciate janice's art and came around to appreciate the part that she played in in making janice who she was uh me personally what i take Janis Joplin over Etta James, I would not. <laughs> but, That's not a fair comparison. <laughs> but but I, I think it's very cool of Etta to realize that, you know, she's got musical children and, you know, it happens to be one of them happens to be Janice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, she's also got some interesting anecdotes about Jimi Hendrix. She knew him back when he was playing with the Isley, even before he was playing with the Isley Brothers, called him Egg Foo Young because he loved Chinese food so much. And so she was very aware of what was going on in that period with Hendrix and Sly Stone and Janis Joplin and others and does make a few albums trying to emulate that funk or rock direction in the early 70s. But I don't think... Um, they're pretty solid albums. I enjoyed going back and listening to them, but it's, it doesn't compare with the stuff she had done previously. And then I after don't she know. Does, <laughs> well, tell us, I mean, there's some good stuff on there. It's, it's what I realized this week was you can only listen to one record at a time. And, <laughs> yeah. and so I, whatever I'm listening to tends to be my favorite artist at that moment. Cause the, the memory of Etta James at her peak, can't really compete with the Etta James from not quite her peak that you're hearing at the moment. So, you know, <laughs> that think... stuff, yeah, that, that stuff was definitely not as, as popular, but I gotta say, I really enjoy those, those albums a lot. Um, uh, there's an album where she's, she's covering a couple of Randy Newman songs. Uh, yes. yeah, it's, it's, it's just called Etta James. I think that's a really good album. It's definitely, uh, yeah, it's definitely one I enjoyed listening to for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, she she does, you know, you can leave your hat on and she does Sail Away, which yeah, I just, I think it's really interesting. And, that Which both, is a legendary song, you know, and it's a song about, from the point of view of people being enslaved the slave ships a very dark song and i think she owns it i think she kind of claimed that song yeah and i would say that, that her version of that is definitive now i'm kind of kicking myself and wishing i'd pick that for one of the um samples but also one last thing we want to get into is her last 15 or 20 years maybe even 30 years she got this reputation as this blues matriarch and she gets swept into this blues revival that Stevie Ray Vaughan and Robert Cray and others were leading. And it's great. It was great for her, got her a lot of audience, uh, got her a lot of gigs, but it's kind of a bad fit. I mean, she was doing blues songs from the beginning. I mean, she does Muddy Waters on uh, that live album from Nashville, the Rocks the House album. She does I Just Want to Make Love to You and totally owns it. But 
not really quite a blues. I mean, she's a rocker and a soul person. Why do you think she got that blues title? I, you know, I, it's, I, I think it's, it has to do with the audience and in the, in the eighties, the blues audience had changed quite significantly and it become, uh, this sort of like the, the roots of rock and roll kind of thing. And, you know, the roots of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin sort of thing. And, and, you know, and Eric Clapton and, and, um, that's where the biggest audience was for, for these people who were, you know, digging through and, and, you know, uh, trying, trying to find the roots, uh, and hailing them as, as the roots and not as what it is itself. Um, and Edda was able to, sing the blues as as well as anybody ever has and she's always been sung bluesy uh with anything that she does so it you know it it fits right in and i think you know in the aftermath of of disco i mean what is she gonna do she she gonna get uh (laughs) produced by luther vandross luther luther can't do anything for her (laughs) no yeah yeah it was it was a logical fit but yeah like you're saying i think that the history had been telescoped by mostly white fans who thought of the blues as sort of the root of all black music. They didn't really know anything about the Louis Jordan and Laverne Baker era of R&B and, yeah. and, and, and the Roy Brown and Wynoni Harris of rock and roll before white people were involved. You know, it was called rock and roll and was a thing for a solid five years before Elvis Presley comes along. And, you know, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones and Jimmy Page and other people sort of put the blues at the front of their influences and which is totally great. And, and it, you know, I, I'm happy that Muddy Waters and, and Howlin' Wolf and Robert Johnson got this lionization. But it, it also came at a cost of kind of diminishing Ray Charles or diminishing Etta James yeah. in her true context. And, and that's kind of one of the projects of the show is, is to bring R&B, the Louis Jordan style R&B to the forefront and remind people that blues was this old style from the twenties that a few eccentrics from Mississippi, uh, like John Lee Hooker and, and Muddy Waters and others were keeping alive and had brought into a modern era. But, you know, that's one thing I learned from Ed Ward was that there was a real split in the African-American audience and most urban younger audiences thought of the blues as this old kind of corny stuff for Bama's for people who were coming up from the South or, <laughs> You know, for old people, I don't know if I'm allowed to say Bama, but, <laughs> but, but uh, it's a thing that people say sometimes, especially here in in DC. It's a very DC thing to say. Oh yeah, I mean they were calling Snoop Dogg a Bama at at the uh, Source Awards, you know, that started the whole <laughs> Tupac and Biggie thing. So yeah. anyway, but it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up as something you want to talk about because Etta complained. She didn't really complain. But she did point out that it, it was kind of an odd fit for her that she wasn't BB King. Yeah, um, you know. Actually, she, yeah. Go ahead. I think that happened 
to to especially to um, female singers. And the funny thing is, she would go out there and she would sing her, all of all of her hits. She'd go out there and sing Sunday Kind of Love, and that would be considered a blues show. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that happened to you know, I can think of Ruth Brown, who you know was yeah the the things that she would was doing would be considered blues now, but it was hardcore R and B at the time. Uh, you know Irma Thomas, like Time is on My Side, is 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 that really you know. Yeah, that's a brill building number. It's not. A- <laughs> that's, that's not exactly you know queen of the blues material. Not not to diminish uh, right. You know the legacies that they were able to establish in their in their late career, but they were bigger than that. Um, and I think I think people do uh, miss something when they when they label them in that small way. Uh, it's something that happened to a lot of musicians and particularly to female blues, uh, excuse me, <laughs> female <laughs> singers. You're doing it now. <laughs> Absolutely. And so uh, this is uh, Brooks Long has been joining me for a discussion of David Ritz's co-authored bi- autobiography of Etta James, Rage to Survive. And Brooks, looking forward to having you back next time when we're going to talk about Smokey Robinson as we continue the David Ritz Book Club with Nate Wilcox and Brooks Long. Thanks so much. Thank you. A lot of fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Gary Janelle to discuss Milton Brown, the father of Texas Swing. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.